Are you enjoying this podcast? Well, you have KUOW members to thank for that. KUOW members make the trusted local journalism and storytelling you hear on this show possible. Become a member today and help support the production of this podcast. It only takes a minute. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. KUOW's Bill Radke hosted the program. And uh, there would be no program if it weren't for our always excellent panel of journalists, which today I'm talking about insider tech correspondent Catherine Long. Hi, Catherine. Hey. Publicola co-founder and editor Erica Barnett. Hi, Erica. Hello. GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis. Hi, Mike. Hey, Bill. Good to have you all along with us. And you can watch the show if you like it that way. YouTube and Facebook streams the show. And uh, if you miss any of it, you really didn't because it's on the podcast. Just go over to KUOW.org. And uh, so lots of ways to enjoy the program. Before we start, fans of Week in Review, please come out with us for a live year in review at McCaw Hall in four weeks, Thursday evening, December 15th, a great panel of journalists plus special guests, including, I just got confirmation yesterday, who was the biggest upset winner in the congressional election? Marie Glusenkamp Perez. On stage with us. She's, she's our, our person of the year, 2022. And, um, yeah, she's going to be fascinating to meet. I'm looking into whether we can have her fell a tree on stage <laughs> or or fix my carburetor. Or but we'll definitely car, talk. Exactly. Yes, yes. But politics for sure. And more special guests, too. I'll tell you more about that later in today's show. You can find details and tickets at org slash events and come out and see us. Okay, our first topic um, – Catherine Long, you are exactly who I want to hear from on our first topic. Uh, as I say, you cover the tech industry, you cover Amazon, and apparently Amazon doesn't just hire people. They they also are capable of laying people off, like maybe 10,000 this holiday season, and the CEO says maybe more next year. Yeah, it turns out Amazon, Amazon has been the great shrinking tech giant this week. Uh, it's been a tumultuous week to be an Amazon worker. Uh, the New York Times reported on Monday that Amazon plans to lay off about 10,000 corporate employees. That's about 3% of its corporate workforce. So in the context of other tech layoffs we've seen at Facebook, for instance, you know, a, a relatively small layoff. But that's still 10,000 people. And, yeah. and for those folks and for other Amazon employees here in Seattle and elsewhere, it's been really sort of a wild ride. Um, I think a lot of Amazon employees would characterize it as opaque and frustrating. Uh, there wasn't any communication from leadership after the publication of the New York Times article that left them sort of scrambling to talk to each other, try to share information and figure out what was going on, which uh, divisions would be affected, which ones would be safe. And by the time the dust had all settled, it seemed like most of the cuts this week were made in Amazon's devices division. That's home to Alexa, the virtual assistant, as well as Luna, the video game streaming platform. Uh, human resources recruiters were offered uh, voluntary buyouts, and there were some cuts also in, in other divisions. More cuts to come after Thanksgiving in the, in the retail division. That's Amazon's e-commerce organization. And why – I want to hear questions from my other panelists too, but – uh, first blush, why is this happening and why is it happening now? 
You know, Amazon and, and other tech giants, they, they grew really fast in the pandemic. They staffed up. They expanded quickly. Um, Amazon in particular, we're not entirely sure how many corporate employees it added in the past two years. But all told, its headcount roughly doubled between 2020 and 2022. Most of that headcount was probably in the warehouses. But I think it's safe to say that Amazon added a lot of corporate employees in the last couple of years. As uh, the economy has grown a little bit more uncertain, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos told people to, quote, batten down the hatches uh, last month. Amazon is looking forward, seeing where it can cut. Alexa, which reportedly loses about $5 billion a year, is probably a pretty good place if you want to focus on parts of your business that are actually making money. I'm curious, you know, during the pandemic and before that, too, I mean, it seemed like Amazon really got into a lot of lines of business that were not um, sort of its its base. So, like, you know, I'm thinking of bookstores, which was pre-pandemic. Those started closing. Um, some of these kind of side products like the fitness uh, tracker right. that doesn't Amazon have any screen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's just all these all these things that I was kind of thinking, like, what are they doing? And are they setting themselves up to be like Peloton? Um, you know, by sort of pushing out all this stuff that people might be interested in um, during the pandemic. But, you know, it seems pretty experimental. Totally. I mean, I had the same thought, you know, and I went through a bunch of the projects that Amazon rolled out during the pandemic. Amazon Explore, this travel experiences program that uh, was actually virtual. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure who used that. Um, uh, The the Halo Watch that you mentioned, uh, you know, there were there were some 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 other initiatives that Amazon rolled out. And I'm sort of thinking, like, who who are these for? Who who's using these? And uh, a lot of those a lot of those projects got got cut. Another one uh, that comes to mind is Amazon Amp, uh, the live radio streaming platform that faced pretty severe cuts in the past week as well. <laughs> live radio, <laughs> who cares? <laughs> yeah, really? What what was the? It, it it felt to me like when I was watching all of these happen, and of course we did a bunch of stories on this as well at uh, at GeekWire. It felt to me like the communication from the top was either non-existent or very indirect about what was going on. And what was your impression of how well it was communicated and what was happening? Because everyone in this room probably has a friend or a relative who works there in downtown or maybe maybe doesn't. I certainly do. And, and they felt like it was unnecessarily – like it created an enormous amount of tension that was unnecessary if it had just been communicated a little better. I think that's exactly right. That's what I heard from uh, a ton of Amazon employees, people who spoke to me directly, as well as nearly 20,000 Amazon workers who joined a Slack channel to discuss these layoffs in the absence of any communication from leadership. That channel was created, uh, I I think, around Tuesday morning. By two days later, there were 20,000 people in it. Uh, Thursday, HR had to shut it down because it got so, uh, you know, rambunctious in there. But folks were expressing a lot of anger about the lack of communication. They they said, you know, the, the S team, Amazon senior leadership team, the executives who set the direction for the company had lost a lot of trust. I, as I said earlier, I asked some of our listeners in our community feedback club, was, is this affecting you personally, your business? Um, got a bunch of responses. Uh, Nikki in South Seattle's not in tech and says, will this become a pattern? I'm a college student entering the STEM field. Will it be an issue when I graduate? Which gets at this. Is this just, oh, you know, interest rates are high and they hired like crazy? Or And we'll talk more about this probably in our year in review show. But uh, how, how much of a blip versus a systemic new normal does this seem like? 
Well, I think something that's interesting is that even though we've been seeing layoffs in the tech sector, the overall labor market is still quite strong. And there are a lot of tech jobs out there, even if they're not, you know, at Amazon right now. Uh, maybe this this listener who's about to graduate college, uh, this listener and, and, and others like them um, – who are graduate, graduating with degrees in STEM, um, I, I suspect that some of them may end up taking jobs at, uh, you know, non, non-big non five tech companies that still need to hire tech talent. I think, I think that's an excellent point. If you look at the overall job numbers, it's not as bad as it would seem because we're paying a lot of attention. And it's not just Amazon laying off, right? There's, there's layoffs happening in the tech, sest- tech sector across the board. But if you look at how rapidly, I mean, especially if you're in college now, you've seen nothing but a boom time in tech, right? I mean, you've seen that dates back years. And now we're getting sort of a it's more of a leveling off really than it is. It's a slowdown of the expansion rather than a complete retreat, right? Yeah, I think that's totally right. If you look at how many people these companies hired in the past two years, even these reductions still leave them with a lot more people than they started with before the pandemic. A listener named Pat in Greenwood says, I work for a large local tech company. We're definitely impacted. Employees are anxious. I'm seeing signs of depression. The layoffs on top of the lower stock market and an uptick in physical illnesses are taking their toll on many of the people I work with. Um, You told me there's a freakout guide circulating. Is that just an Amazon thing or in general? Well, I, I, I don't know how employees at other tech companies are handling this. But yes, this week I did learn how to handle a layoff like an Amazonian. Uh, one of the resources that Amazon employees were sharing amongst each other was something called a freakout uh, response form, a FERF. Uh, this is <laughs> sort of a, a one-page document that uh, is, is intended to help people who are experiencing kind of an overwhelming work situation, uh, get to the root cause of what's causing them anxiety and figure out a way to, to move forward. Um, I, I should say for the record that this is an, an unofficial Amazon document. Yeah. It was developed by an Amazon employee, but it's it's been getting a, a lot of play internally in, in recent days. Don't catastrophize. Do you really know what's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it also asks employees to look inward. How, how are things maybe like imposter syndrome or a sense of, of comparing yourself against other people, maybe playing into uh, making a sense of anxiety a little bit more um, overwhelming than potentially it actually is? Hmm. It sounds like a one-pager on cognitive behavioral therapy. That's exactly <laughs> What was my response? That's what it. That's what it is. That's good advice. I mean, you could, you know, the FERF is is classic, classic name for it. But it's pretty good. I I got uh, laid off when the 2008, you know, real estate bubble and that and the recession. I was in Los Angeles working for a public radio show, and I instead of uh, and my wife was pregnant, and we were underwater in our mortgage. We had just bought a house, and our house was worth far less. Every you know, you name it, and rather than freak out, it's as if I read the FERF because first of all, I I really did I tried to empathize with the people who were on still on the ship, and they were sort of underwater on their show and felt bad about it, and and I and I acknowledge that. And another is I said, you know, I hope you'll replace me with John Moe because he's fantastic, <laughs> and which they did, and they were and they were basically impressed with my composure, and, and I think it helped. That because of that, the same company hired me to host Marketplace Morning Report 
not long after, which was more fun and, and, and better paying. And so I'm not saying it always works out that way, obviously. Right. But the cognitive behavioral therapy advice of, well, wait a second, this is a moment in time, and what do you know and what don't you know, and what's this really about? I think it's good advice. I think so, too. I mean, uh, just as a quick aside, when I was laid off from the post-intelligencer in 2009, the whole 95% of us were laid off yeah. in one fell swoop when no one was hiring journalists yes. anywhere. One of the weird things, it was handled – I mean, Hearst itself didn't handle it so great. But our individual human resources director was so – I ended up being like close friends. This is the person who laid me off, who literally delivered the message. And I think that there is a way to get through this situation if you can. I mean, it was in a bad way for me also financially when that happened. But to your point, you know, that sort of ability to adjust your own response to it can hopefully pay off in some sort of dividend down the road. Isn't somebody going to say that's tone deaf and, and good for you? you you're, you're privileged? Because I feel like uh – there's people who are really suffering right now at the holiday season. In fact, well, I got, well, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't going to say exactly that. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I'm looking at the, a note from Tom in our feedback club. Tom says, "How about talking about the fact these layoffs are being perpetrated by billionaire CEOs five weeks before Christmas? How about discussing the morality and ethics of these billionaire SOBs who pay less income tax than any of their workers?" Yeah, I mean that's that's a sentiment that I saw <laughs> echoed a lot in uh in in this this Amazon Slack channel certainly. Um and you know some some to to your earlier point Bill something that that uh also really struck me was that so many of these people who are being laid off are um immigrant workers who are here on H1B visas. So yeah. in addition to being laid off, they need to find a new employer to sponsor their visa mm-hmm. and if they can't then uh you know, they they may need to uproot their lives, uproot their families, and and uh, leave the country. Um, so yeah, it is it is it is a tough situation for a lot of folks. It's real. Okay, this is a this is a, a, a sort of an easy segue, I have to say, to our next topic because Erica, you've been covering. I assume this is a related story: government budget cuts. I mean, we've got we've got a slowdown happening, maybe a recession. Um, yeah, is there, what's the relationship? Yeah, well, I mean, governments, as we all know, run on taxes, and taxes come from things like retail sales. Um, but, you know, they also come from things like, um, in the case of Amazon, um, the payrolls uh, that they pay to all these uh, these workers, particularly highly paid tech workers. There's a relatively new tax called the Jumpstart Tax, which is explicitly on the largest companies, and um, and in particular on Amazon. It's highest on companies with revenues over a billion dollars. And uh, so that, you know, as as Amazon lays people off, that payroll is going to lower. The jumpstart tax revenues are going to lower. That's in the future. Right now what's happening is the city this year faced a $141 million shortfall that just got a little bit bigger um, because of revenue forecasts into 2023, 2024. And that's all from all different kinds of taxes, business taxes, payroll taxes, Retail taxes, sales taxes. And so when that happens, the city has to cut. Um, that means cutting government services. That means um, usually not cutting police, um, but cutting things like um, spending on homelessness, um, spending on all kinds of goods and services or services that the city is used to, um, you know, that people in the city are used to having funded. Um, so we're not going to get new parks this year. We're not going to get all kinds of new things that were kind of expected. Um, community center expansions, uh, library seismic upgrades, 
there's tons of stuff that's on the chopping block. Um, you know, the way that the city did the budget this year and the way the city council is proposing to do its balancing package, it's it's mostly going to fall on new programs. So it's going to be things that, you know, the community centers that will not be upgraded, things that we thought were going to happen this year. But, you know, the forecast does not look good in 2023, 24, 25, and 26 either. So um, what we're seeing now is just the beginning of what will probably be cuts that could turn into layoffs at the city and and more severe cuts that we'll start really noticing um, in those out years. What is What's going to happen with with the the Harold administration and its response to this, because I think this is whenever a city faces this sort of significant of a shortfall, you find out very, very quickly what their actual priorities are. Right? Yeah. I mean, in this uh, in this budget, Harold um, did propose a not spending some money on police officers. It's, it's a little confusing, but the police department kind of gets refunded every year, even right. if the budget uh, director, you know, even if the budget cuts the position, the funding for certain positions. So there's 120 positions. And Harold did say, look, we're not going to fund those positions. Um, some of that money went back into the general fund. Um, but, you know, most of the stuff that Harold wanted to fund was like um, more spending on homeless sweeps, um, more spending on, you know, other aspects of public safety, spending on graffiti, a gunfire uh, protection or a gunfire detection system. So um, so those are Harold's priorities. Um, now, a lot of that's not going to get funded now because right. the forecast is even worse than, you know, the city thought before. But I, I think I think that says a lot about his priorities. Totally. And what do you think it does in terms of tension between the mayor's office and the city council now that there is going to be this, you know, I think enthusiastic discussion yeah. <laughs> about what's going to be cut. I think it's been really interesting to watch this mayor in contrast with the previous mayor, Jenny Durkin, because the relationship with the council was the worst I've ever seen it yeah. in more than 20 years of covering the city. Um, the re- relationship between the council and Harold, who is formerly council president, longtime council member, has been really good. And I think it's still pretty good, um, way better than with Durkin. But I think there's a lot of tension over this issue of um, city council budget chair Teresa Mosqueda has proposed getting rid of 80 police positions that will never be funded, but just getting rid of the, those funding pockets permanently. Um, Harold doesn't want to do that. Some of his allies on the council are calling that um, a cut to police, a return to police defunding, which it is not. But, you know, it is it is going to be a big source of tension over the next uh, week that they have at this point or less than a week to, to hammer or out the budget. over the next several years, potentially. I mean, depending on how this plays out. Yeah. I mean, if uh, if they end up saying we're not going to fund these police positions that, you know, that you want to keep sort of milking for other purposes and, right. you know, grabbing for, to fund other things in the police department, um, that's going to be I mean, that's going to be an issue that keeps coming up in the future when the mayor can say, well, when, when you defunded the police, you eliminated these, you know, the spending that I could have spent on all these other priorities, including police. Catherine, is Amazon going to say, well, I guess we'll lay off those high paying workers who you made us, you slapped a payroll tax on. Uh, this is how we'll react to your jumpstart tax. Do they get, do they get political like that? They, 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 uh, they have gotten a little testy about previous attempts to tax their payroll. Mm. Uh, I I don't foresee that happening in in this instance. You know, I think Amazon is more focused on uh, trying to right its own ship than yeah. <laughs> getting into a fight with city council at this point. 
I mean, I think, too, when they tried to do that a couple years ago with the city council races, it backfired on them spectacularly yeah. and they lost all their races. So they've realized that's not a very good strategy and it's also a waste of money. But does anyone have a sense? Um, I know, Erica, you've written about this. And, and Catherine, I think you probably have at least brushed up against this quite a bit. The whole idea of downtown sort of revitalization and what happened now with, with less money being spent on a variety of th- things in downtown or potentially less money being spent, certainly potentially fewer workers down there. Because remember, it's not just Amazon uh, making layoffs. All the businesses associated that sort of are dependent on these folks and expected to some degree that these folks were – people were coming back. Setting aside the fact that so many people working remotely now, I mean, does it feel to either of you like this is – rolling into a very, very permanent change in what downtown is? Well, I will just point out um, that there's uh, the Macy's building um, is now home to a new anchor tenant, um, Uniqlo, as of, I think, tomorrow. So I, I, I think that there's always a panic about downtown. Right. Um, and there has been, you know, since department stores started to decline 20, 20 30 years ago. Um, I think that it may change in character a little bit, but I do think those storefronts are going to fill. They may fill with different types of tenants. They may, you know, fill with government um, subsidized uh, arts tenants, which I think would be great. Right. Um, but I, I don't think that if there's a government subsidy to be had, sure. But that's <laughs> but that's a cheap investment relative right. to a lot of other things we spend our money on. I mean, a, almost a quarter of the budget goes to of the general fund budget goes to police. Right. Um, and 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 in fairness, I mean, the city of Seattle is funding you know things like that, and right. the Jumpstart tax right. does fund you know organizations like small businesses. So I think the character will change, but I think it's just it's way too soon to start you know sounding the death knell for downtown. Okay, before we take a break, can I ask you one related question, Catherine? Since returning working from home versus office came up, does a shrinking, I know that's an over that's an exaggerated word, a leveling off uh, tech sector. And, it, and, and you know, more competition. And here you've got Elon Musk saying, you know, you got to work from home and all this. Will there be more? Do you think that in 2023, there'll be less freedom to work from home? I certainly think that uh, to a certain degree, the balance of power has shifted back in the direction of tech employers to demand things of their employees. Mm-hmm. You know, when the when the tech hiring market was red hot, when you had these these big tech companies competing tooth and nail for the top talent, you know, remote work was definitely something that everybody felt that they had to give. And even just a couple of, uh, oh gosh, time time moves strangely these days. Maybe, I think this was last month, uh, Amazon directed um, a bunch of its uh, trucking uh, sort of crisis center operatives to immediately return to work in the office in their, their Phoenix location. I got whew, amounts of angry phone calls from Amazon employees about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but even still, Amazon was only asking them to work in the office a couple of days a week. So I think, you know, hybrid work is certainly here to stay. That's 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 not news at this point, but mm-hmm. uh, it's something that bears repeating. We've got to take a break. It, it kind of leads us into our next topic, uh, Mike, because preventing school shootings cost money as well. Right. right? It, we're going to talk about that call and the city response when we return here. More on Week in Review in just a moment. This podcast is free. And it's accessible to everyone, thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give, and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. 
make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke with our journalist panel here, Publicola co-founder and editor Erica Barnett, insider tech correspondent Catherine Long, and GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis. Mike, we learned more this week about the high school senior shot to death at Seattle's Ingram High School last week with a Glock 32 after an argument. There's a 14-year-old boy in juvenile detention charged with murder and assault for shooting at another student. A 15-year-old boy arrested with him on a Metro bus charged with rendering criminal assistance, both charged with unlawful possession of a firearm because they're so young. And, Mike, some Seattle students rallied to demand more from the city and the school system. What is it they want? That's the... the it, it's not a matter of what they want. There's a variety of competing wants here. There, there's a whole bunch of different responses to things like this, and it's not just in Seattle. It's in a variety of cities where this has happened. I mean, one of the one of the the odd twists prior to this was that the city had the schools had canceled the community was it community service uh, school resource officers? Yes, and the school resource officers ostensibly were there for these sort of situations. You have somebody, a sworn officer on campus, who can actually engage on the front end. Maybe somebody hears something's going on, maybe somebody sees something, and then that can maybe prevent things from happening. In this particular case, that that person was not available on campus, although there is an open discussion and argument as to whether or not that would help. I think right now, at that high school, there is a strong feeling that that it should be that you should have the resource officer back or officers back on campus on high school campuses throughout Seattle. But the, remind us why they were taken away, generally taken away. Money. I mean, it it it, it the idea. Well, there's two things: money and there is there has been some institutional pushback about having cops on campuses. Right. Two things going on and. And this is the complicated nature of high school, whether or not you have that on campus, and that is something you want to project as campus is not being a safe and secure place, so we have to have metal detectors and officers there. Or do we acknowledge you know, this, that these sort of situations can happen? This is a very, very – I think this is a very difficult problem for schools to solve. Logistically, it's a difficult problem, primarily because how do you cover every – high schools are designed in these open – open uh, uh, platform that allows for a lot of entrances and exits. It allows for a lot of open windows, things like that, that that make putting in metal detectors. If you were to look at school experts about whether metal detectors help, you would think that it would be universally. Everyone would say yes, and it's actually not true. And in fact, this argument, I think at Oxford High School in Detroit is going on right now, whether or not they need metal detectors at every possible opening in a school. And this is the type of discussion that's happening now uh, with Ingram High School here in Seattle. Well, I think that the students were asking more for um, mental health resources right. and gun safety measures, not for cops at schools. I mean, my understanding of why they cut the school resource officers was that it was largely – I mean, it was it was a budget issue, but it was largely because – the fact or the the perception anyway that um, police officers at schools have not prevented school shootings. I mean, look right, at the exactly. response in Uvalde. I mean, there's, you know, a tremendous number of police officers just standing around doing nothing um, and a pretty, you know, hardened school, you know, and, uh, you know, 
metal detectors, as you've said, have not been proven to be particularly effective. So I think that, you know, there is a push for mental health resources. I think actually the city council has been pretty has been responding, responding to that um, in sort of last minute budget discussions. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think the fact is you can't harden a school enough. Um, and in this particular case, I mean, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't sort of a random mass shooter. It no, was it, interpersonal was, it was conflict. targeted. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I, I think it that— was, It was student—it followed a fight among students. And, right. I, and I think the fact that you have a 14-year-old, the fact that the, the perpetrator um, here is, you know, the alleged perpetrator here is 14 years old, um, I mean, just speaks really to, like, the fact that you can't, you can't just treat this as a criminal justice and, you know, a, a more policing and a public safety issue because this is, this is a child with a child's brain and a child's understanding of consequences. Um, and um, I don't see any way out of that type of situation other than mental health resources and getting help for kids um, to understand the consequences of actions like this and the fact that, like, the, the consequences are permanent. Speaking of the alleged assailant's age, I know there's been some discussion of potentially charging uh, this person as an adult. Where, did, where does that stand? Uh, it's not been decided yet whether or not that's going to be going to happen. And and that is going to be a secondary. I mean, among the many debates in this is, uh, and I think to, to Erica's point, you're dealing with a child here. And so what does a 14-year-old cognitively, what does a 14-year-old, how does a 14-year-old qualify as an adult? Well, I don't know in the in the juvenile justice system, sometimes the mental state of the 14-year-old is irrelevant. They, wanna, they want to charge an adult crime, a kid with an adult crime, because it was, you know, it's a homicide, right? But in this particular case, I would say also with the community resource officers, you, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's been an open debate whether or not these help, although here's always been the statistical pushback on that, is we actually don't know when they do help. Because nothing happens, right? In other words, there's not a statistical – these statistical samples are so small at any individual high school that who knows if in some case – and I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily scientifically accurate, but it's very difficult to say to, – to statistically account for a non-event, right? Which that, is when I think you should listen to kids. I mean, right. like when, when kids are saying, this is what we need and this is what my friends need and this is what I need. Right. I mean, that, that those voices actually should matter, you know, even though or, or I would say because they are the immediately impacted people. But also you've got issues with how do teachers in this particular case, we had a teacher, like there, there was some awareness that there was a very agitated kid on campus. Now, do they see this every day and they can't react to all of them? Perhaps. I don't know. I mean, that's, none of that is very clear in the story itself. But, but there was a group of kids who got in a fight with a kid trying to take away the gun, at least allegedly, according to the Seattle Times story. Where was the, what was the gap in the period of time? Did any of these kids go to anyone, either you know, there's no community service officer, but to a teacher and say, like, hey, there's a kid with a gun, right? Because this actually this played out over a period of time. This didn't play out... Uh, in in 10 seconds, right? And I'm kind of wondering what happened there and why wasn't there a resource available or at least a procedure available where these kids themselves would r- report on a kid who they knew had a handgun at school. 
I think this also gets back to, you know, the larger question of what's going to happen with the juvenile detention facility. I think this is going to be um, fodder and maybe fairly so for people who say, look, there are some crimes that we have to take that child out of society and put them somewhere where they cannot cause harm. And I'm not a proponent or not a proponent of that view in this case. I just, you know, I'm not an expert enough to to, to have a, a super informed opinion However, I mean, I think that this is the kind of case people are talking about when they say we need a juvenile detention facility. Um, King County Executive Dal Constantine has set a timeline for closing down the youth jail, which just opened um, very recently, a new facility opened that was supposed to be kind of a more compassionate version of a jail, but it is still a jail. And so the question is, can we replace that with some sort of other confinement or you know, or facility or home where kids can, you know, simultaneously be treated and helped and given an education and treated compassionately, but also, you know, without sort of saying we're going to completely abolish the practice of taking kids who commit horrific crimes and impactful crimes out of society for a while, um, you know, as punishment and protection for people who, you know, are on the outside. So, you know, I don't I don't have a, a solution in that debate, but that this is going to impact that debate for sure. Absolutely. And, and, and let's just say, for example, and what's also going to be a factor in this, to, to your point, is if this 14-year-old is tried as a juvenile, that that 14-year-old is released at 21 years old in Washington State. Now, I'm not suggesting whether or not that is uh, a good or a bad thing, but what I am saying is if you're the parent of a kid who was a victim, you're going to feel very, very strongly that maybe that shouldn't be the case because you're certainly without a kid, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, there are, there are kids who, I mean, there are parents um, and, you know, an impact to people who participate in re- restorative justice programs. Not everybody. I mean, it's not a monolithic, like, I want to lock no, no, this no. person up forever. I understand it's not monolithic. and I, That wasn't my point. My point was more that if you are a parent and you have uh, your 17-year-old was killed at a high school, and then you know seven years later this other kid's out, there are going to be parents who are going to find a way to maybe it through restorative justice. Do, but there are also going to be people right now at the immediate term when these decisions are being made who are maybe not going to be as comfortable with that. And I'm not suggesting one way or the other is the appropriate way. I'm just saying that this issue at high school, which is just by itself a tragic event, is going to spin out in a variety of big decisions that are going to be highly pressurized coming at, moving ahead. And listening to the kids, I think, is absolutely a super important component, but it's not the only component. Okay, we, we've got to move on. So there's a few things that are, that are going to be ongoing. The, the court case against these two and so far juvenile detention. Um, we talked about the bigger picture, Juvenile Justice Center, and we've got, it. meanwhile, the city and county. They're making, these are partly budget decisions. Uh, so all that is going on. I want to move to a, a less awful but still public safety issue, Erica, which is that if your favorite pedestrian intersection doesn't have a crosswalk, you can make one. The design and color scheme are quite simple. And replicable, and this is happening, uh, some Seattleites doing DIY CWs. So I assume the city is thanking them for safeguarding walkers at no taxpayer expense. Yeah, um, quite the contrary. So there no. was a there was um, a, an attempt at some tactical urbanism, I would call it, which is tactical uh, urbanism. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't make this up. I'm not going to take credit for it. But the, but that is that this is an example of that where some uh, some people painted a crosswalk in an intersection um, at a well, they painted a crosswalk 
at a crosswalk um, because every single um, intersection in the state of Washington is a crosswalk. Because pedestrian has right-of-way. Pedestrians have right-of-way, correct. And this is actually a crosswalk where SDOT had gone in and created wheelchair ramps and, and indicated, you know, this is where you're supposed to cross. Um, but there's no painted crosswalk. So some folks uh, came in, um, painted one, I, I assume in the night. Um, and the Seattle Department of Transportation uh, very, very swiftly um, went out and started power washing it away. And um, this got noted on Twitter, and it turned into um, a big blow up um, because the Seattle Department of Transportation then came in and said that it is dangerous to have um, a crosswalk because uh, a painted crosswalk that was not authorized and that didn't go through the whole Seattle process because it confuses drivers and it creates a false sense of safety for pedestrians. Why false? I mean, you just told me that the pedestrian is legally safe, quote unquote, has the right of way. Has the right of way. So why would a painted crosswalk make anyone less safe? Well, a lot of people ask that question on Twitter, um, including me. And um, the SDOT um, did not provide any kind of response to that. Um, They just sort of, I mean, in a series of, of really wild, unforced errors, I would say, I mean, just kind of being familiar with how Twitter works doubled down and said, you know, this is just absolutely we did the right thing. Um, and um, if you want to participate in the process, you can go to public meetings. And people, you know, on Twitter, there are a lot of people who are very involved with pedestrian safety and advocacy. And they spoke up and said, look, I've done this. I've gone to a zillion public meetings. I started asking for you guys to repaint a crosswalk that you painted because it's gone now. Um, you know, six years ago, and now my kids are grown up and have driver's licenses. And, you know, (laughs) and you haven't done it. So this process doesn't work. And we're telling you it doesn't work. And that's why this happens. Hmm. And um, then the director of SDOT, again, just a wild, I would call unforced error, jumped in and started, you know, calling people disingenuous and saying that somebody, you know, was engaging in dangerous disinformation, like just a a person on Twitter, you know. And I mean, it was just it was so fascinating to watch because it was just like the the worst PR response you could possibly imagine. Um, And, um, you know, and as I pointed out on Publicola, uh, meanwhile, uh, the Department of Transportation, which is responsible for the right of way, allows eco blocks to be placed, which are these big concrete blocks to prevent RVs from parking. Right. There are thousands of them that individual businesses and individuals have placed all over the city. They're illegal. Um, But SDOT has done nothing. And actually, Greg Spots, the new director of SDOT under Bruce Harrell, said that they are going to continue to do nothing. Um, in order to prioritize other safety concerns, unspecified, um, about these eco-blocks. So there's a real contradiction there in my mind and in a lot of people's mind. Prioritize other safety concerns like pressure washing off these (laughs) crosswalks. I mean, I certainly have had the impulse to paint a gorilla crosswalk in my neighborhood, more than one. You know, it's it's, uh, really frustrating to be walking down the street, try to cross at a crosswalk, know that I have the right of way, and to see a car refuse to stop for me. You know, it happens multiple times a day. Yeah. So it's basically rectangular graffiti as far as the city's concerned. Well, and what, what's also, and I'll, I'll shut up on this in a second. I mean, I could soapbox for the next 15 minutes, um, which I won't. But I mean, what's also, you know, very, like, just frustrating about this is, is that, you know, 
people are when people take things into their own hands, you would think that the city would listen. And I think in the past, the city has listened. There have been um, neighborhoods that have, you know, done the same thing, essentially painted crosswalks, um, one in the Central District. Uh, there's a Pan-African flag, one in um, on Capitol Hill. There was a rainbow, rainbow. flag. Mm-hmm. And SDOT at the time and the Department of Neighborhoods came in and said, you know what, like, this is this is great. They're not up to standard though. They don't they don't have reflective paint or whatever. So we're going to go in and we're going to we're going to do the same thing. We're going to do this for you because there's a need there. And um that's what used to happen. There was a whole website they created that was up for less than a year unfortunately. Like if you want a crosswalk, you know, submit your design or whatever. That's all gone and now there's this 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 kind of um Revanche, I mean, you know, this response of like, of like, no, if we didn't come up with it, it's a bad idea. And I think that's a real step backwards. And again, just an unforced PR error. All right. So I'm going to take a little different opinion of this. I am not <laughs> a massive fan of, as a person who rides a motorcycle and a bicycle, 90% of the time, I am not a fan of people who decide to paint on a street. Generally speaking, if they're using, especially if they're using substandard paint, because it could be quite slip, more slippery than regular paint. So that's not any good. But two, I don't like the idea of folks deciding on their own. I mean, I understand. I get it. Unsafe intersections. And trust me, I am highly reactive as a person who's on his bicycle all the time. Highly reactive to bad drivers and also bad cyclists in Seattle because there's plenty of both. But I would say that I'm not a big fan of people who deciding where they are going to. And I know actually a couple of people who did exactly this, and I completely understand why they did it, the gorilla sidewalk, the gorilla, rather the gorilla crosswalk thing. I understand why they did it. I don't understand. What I don't understand in this whole dynamic is why, when we switch to district council elections, why there isn't a mechanism to contact your council member from your neighborhood and, and have a pathway for getting this solved. And I agree. I mean, I don't, I've, having dealt, dealt personally in a business with SDOT as well as, as a reporter with SDOT, it's not an organization or, or an agency that frequently, I think, has a history of listening to, to people as maybe as well as it should. And, and I would say that the people who are making the case for crosswalks and areas probably are making very good cases for it. But I'm still not a fan of random members of the public deciding to put new lines on a street that may not actually make anything any safer at all. And in fact, it may make it less safe in some circumstances, especially because every intersection effectively, like we've said, is a crosswalk. I mean, I know when I'm riding and when I'm driving, I'm looking at every intersection. I'm not just looking at intersections where those are painted. Well, as a as a frequent pedestrian, I mean, I know just, I mean, and, and again, like, yeah, I haven't done, I haven't done a five-year study on this, which right. is what Estat would probably propose. But I know that people are more likely to stop in crosswalks that have flashing lights and painted crosswalks. Than Certainly ones the flashing where I'm just, lights, I would agree with you. But then one where I'm just standing there. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think there was a mechanism to your point about um, districts. Now, SDOT is, is a mayoral responsibility, right. so they, right. it doesn't answer to the city council. But there was a program called Your Voice, Your Choice, where you could apply for funds, essentially, as a neighborhood. Um, the city cut funding for that program, and it is gone. So that mechanism is not available to people anymore. And so I, I think that people, you know, there were, there were bike lanes that were created this way in the city um, with people doing tactical urbanism, putting up, putting up, you know, obstacles to keep cars from hitting them. And we got to remember, I mean, the city has a goal of vision zero, not 
no traffic deaths or serious injuries, and we are going in the wrong direction. More well, and more no, people we've are actually, dying. It's actually worse since the Vision yeah. Zero program. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a real problem here. Okay. Well, I wonder how many more gorilla crosswalks will pop up just because of this discussion. That's the thing. I mean, that's what I mean by an unforced error. I think that this is going to prompt more of this. Where's the limit? I think, I think you're probably right. Yeah. All right. Um, and not all, of us, not all of us are endorsing that eventuality. <laughs> uh, we need to take another short break, and then we've got lots of stuff to do before the show vanishes on us. So quick break and more Week in Review when we come right back. Okay, KOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. We've got GeekWire's Mike Lewis, Insiders, Catherine Long, Publicola's Erica Barnett. We've only got eight minutes left in the show. We haven't said any election updates yet. And by the way, uh, Congress member almost-elect Marie Glusenkamp-Perez will be on stage with me for our annual Year in Review show. So that's December 15th at McCaw Hall. Details and tickets at KUOW.org slash events. Yes, uh, Glusenkamp-Perez is still invited, even though I say almost-elect because the count's not official yet. The news media say Kent cannot catch up, but the media don't choose our representatives. Okay, <laughs> So we'll see. Um, more on the uh, Year in Review show in a moment. But what do we know about election results? Ranked choice voting is closer to being approved, but still not right? Not, not yet in Seattle. Is that right? I think the ranked choice voting campaign may have already declared victory okay. a couple days ago or yesterday. I think so, yeah. That's what I'd read. Yeah. I mean, it, it's looking it's Well, looking it's pretty not certain. the media, and it's not the can- campaigns <laughs> that choose this. Okay. So that's the idea that uh, Seattleites would be able to, to choose not just fill the bubble for one candidate, but maybe say this is my first, third, second, third, fourth, fifth favorite candidates. Well, remember what we talked about on this very show not that long ago. What are we going to end up with, with ranked choice voting? Remember this conversation? Yes. With Joni Balter? Yes. She thought it was... Uh, a problem in search of a solution. Well, no. A solu- I think, I think what, we, what we settled on is that w- what's going to get elected to Seattle City Council. I, I made the point that uh, when it comes to, to – you draw a comparison with, with beer. That, yeah, you're right. That Manny's Pale Ale, made by Georgetown Brewing, is sort of everyone's kind of third favorite beer. <laughs> yes. I mean, I like it. It's, I mean, <laughs> yeah. This is no criticism of Georgetown. Wonderful people, fantastic beer, but it's kind of everyone's third. And so I would watch, as a guy who spends a lot of time you know, in a bar, I would watch – people sort of at a table settle on Manny's because they couldn't all agree on the same thing, but everyone kind of liked it. And Mm -hmm. so my argument is that effectively this is going to be – and I kind of like it as an idea that that this is a way for a lot of people to get – some of what they want. And anyone here at the table who is involved in any level of personal relationship, either a marriage or you know family or whatnot, has been making these compromises <laughs> all of their life. <laughs> I think this is okay. just, just reflecting our personal lives when we go to ranked choice voting. That's how I'm going to go home and describe my marriage. <laughs> Manny's pale ale. <laughs> you were my third favorite. Honey. Third favorite, okay. and I was. But you were also their third favorite. Remember that, right? Good point. That's romantic. Um, U.S. Senator Patty Murray got elected as she always does. She's won like six times, and she's not just another U.S. senator. Why is it a big deal that she's the Senate President Pro Tem? Well, second one from Washington State, Warren Magnuson, if you've ever been to Magnuson Park or any number of other things in in Seattle named after Warren Magnuson, senator until 1981 uh, from Washington State. So the second time we've had President Pro Tem, which means you're third in line uh, for the the presidency. But the other thing that's the bigger part of this whole matter 
is you're now head of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Right. And if you're head of the Senate Appropriations Committee, that means you are helping direct where billions and billions and billions of federal dollars are headed. Like you were, I think, referenced in an, in an email, like it's, it's, it's pork when other people get it and necessary projects when you get it. <laughs> yes, right? that's and, right. And that is the type of thing. I mean, famously in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, Warren Magnuson and Scoop Jackson, another senator from Washington State, as a, as a two-headed monster, directed enormous sums of money here for Boeing, for the University of Washington, for a variety of things. Mm-hmm. Now, can Patty Murray do that as appropriations chair? I don't know, but she's certainly better able to do that than she was prior. Okay, it's, so I think it's a really interesting development. She's third in line for presidency. We're first in line for the pork. Bingo. Okay, uh, Erica, when is a building historic? Is it just because it's old? Or is it because it's special? Tell us about this building on Capitol Hill, and it's not alone. Yeah, there's a building that I think is most commonly known as the Jaitai Building for its longest tenant. Uh, Jaitai, I think, just uh, is closing um, as of this week. A but, comedy um, club in there, too. Yeah, um, Angel Thai before that, that was that's as far back as I go. Yeah. Um, but um, basically in Seattle, if a building is 25 years old or older, which uh, now is 1997, you guys, um, <laughs> it, it can be nominated as historic based on a number of different criteria. This one um, was uh, was up for nomination. It was not nominated this week, but it's a two-story building that is going to probably be torn down now for 100 completely affordable or, well, not completely affordable. Let me take that back. 100 percent. Um, affordable uh, apartments and a hundred of them. Um, so, um, yeah, there was an argument that this building is historic based on its uh, its architect, who is a guy named Henry Dozier, who has a real uh, checkered history um, that I talk about on Publicola this week, um, and also a lot of salacious 125-year-old gossip, if you're into that. Um, and it was nominated based on the fact that yeah, basically, it's old. It's uh, it's an old building that was part of uh, the Broadway Strip um, around the turn of the last century. It looked a lot like a lot of the other buildings. There was a home uh, for uh, pregnant women there, like many other homes of its sort at the time. Um, and so a couple of Landmark Board uh, members argued that this made it um, notable, and the rest of the Landmark Board disagreed, which is kind of unusual in Seattle. I mean, Seattle likes to landmark buildings that are not particularly remarkable. Yeah, because we don't, we don't have, have a, photo a lot of, of history it. here. Catherine, so you would describe this building as? Uh, cosmically blah <laughs> 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 was, I think, my reaction when I when I went and looked up this building. Yeah. Uh, speaking of buildings that we don't like landmarking, there was a building uh, near my house that was up for landmark nomination uh, in 2019, the Crescent Apartments, I believe. Uh, it is possibly the most interesting landmarks nomination review board uh, committee meeting ever to happen. It was described variously <laughs> as a prison, as an alien spaceship, and uh, as a place where you, you know, you would never want to spend any part of your life. Landmarks <laughs> nomination meetings are almost always really interesting, I think. I mean, I remember the one for the Denny's um, up in Ballard. Sure. Where, Historic. Where I, which was, uh, you know, an example of, and I think uh, Skip Berger, um, who's on this program frequently, mm-hmm. would describe it as a great example of googie architecture. Um, gooey? Googie. Googie. Yeah, which oh, is a I whole West Coast thing. Gooey. It's very interesting. <laughs> um, but uh, I liked it because it was one of the only 24-hour places in Ballard where I lived at the time. Um, this is mm. back in, I want to say, like 2003 um, when there wasn't a lot going on in Ballard. But um, that also did not um, that it get uh, landmarked and it was ultimately demolished. And now there's a five guys there. I, I only have time. We have a minute left. And I and I yes, 
do you have something to 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 leave listeners with? Well, I always end it with a no, smile. I was just going to agree with everyone. Oh well, that that's that would make me smile <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you guys weren't fighting. So yeah. that would be yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I don't. I think that the landmark thing most of the time in Seattle seems to have been used to prevent development, frequently to prevent density. Uh, yes, it, it's it's always been a tool for that, and it seems to me like this is not anything different. What's going on in Capitol Hill? Yeah, if you don't want to be developed into something new than right. what it is. It's historic. Maybe cosmically blah, but it's historical. Um, okay, we got to go. And we always, um, you know, we, we end the show, Week in Review, with what's making you smile. We do the same thing every December on our onstage year in review show. And so I'm telling you this because we end with your voicemails every year telling us what made you smile this year. So if you leave us a voicemail, the number is 206-616-3248. Give us a call and tell us something that made you smile in 2022. And we can play it on stage and on the air. 206-616-3248. And we are truly uh, out of time except for me to say that I've loved having insider tech correspondent Catherine Long, Publicola co-founder and editor Erica Barnett, and GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis on the show this week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Uh, by the way, information about that uh, year in review event, it's December 15th. You can find out all about it at KUOW.org slash events. I'm Bill Radke. Kevin Kniestet produces the show with social media and live streaming help from Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Bernard Wallet runs the board. Thanks for listening. We're going to take next week off on account of Thanksgiving, and we'll see you in two weeks on Week in Review.